0: Um, Patterson sends his greetings. He was invited to preach in a series with a a pretty impressive group of people. A couple of names I recognize. A man named Bruce McClarty, who is former uh, Harding University President. Also Jeff Walling. So we, uh, Patterson has sent his greetings. He texted me this morning, said he'd be praying for me, which is a good thing. Um, This is my first time to do this. uh, So I'm excited to just share some words that God has put on my heart today. So I'm hoping that God will be blessing the people that are listening to Patterson and that I can say something that will help you in your walk as well. A couple of weeks ago, Patterson spoke on a sermon titled, Defeating a Defeatist Attitude. And he used the story of the uh, 12, I call them explorers now that I've rethought how that lesson went. Um, God said, send 10 men in to explore the land that I'm going to provide to you. And instead... They conjured up some reasons, or 10 of the 12 conjured up some reasons that they might not take that land when God had already promised it to them. They let a neg- an attitude of negativity take over, and they didn't, by faith, accept the gift that God was providing to them. It reminds me of a quote from a movie that's pretty popular right now. Some of you have probably seen it. When God tells you what to do, you cannot hesitate. And I'm just thinking when I when I review that sermon from Patterson in the lesson about our attitudes and a defeatist attitude, that, man, when God tells us to do something, we should not hesitate. So we continue, and today I'm going to continue to ask you to think about attitude choices, along with two other key words that I want you to think about. One is forgive, and one is rejoice. Several years ago, I was watching a... Interview of Herm Edwards. He's a former NFL player and and football coach and this young Female reporter was interviewing him and she admitted on the front end of the interview that She was a little nervous. She was a little intimidated by being there and I'll never forget how he responded. He said why? You know you only really own one thing and that's your attitude and the thing about that is you're the one that gets to decide how it's going to be So I want to encourage us today to think about the the power in that statement We can let circumstances influence our attitude. We can let negative people influence our attitude. But we're really the ones that get to decide what it's gonna be. And when we allow those negative influences to dictate our attitude with regularity, it begins to shape our heart and our outlook on life. And too often we react poorly to circumstances. And we can make erroneous assumptions about people rather than assuming the best and expecting the best. And moment by moment, We need to choose wisely what our attitude is going to be. Paul talks about this in his letter to Philippians. And this morning I've asked Ronnie Martin to fill in with some scripture reading so that um, you'll hear two voices instead of one here and there. But I'm going to ask Ronnie to start us out by reading Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 8.
1: Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things.
0: So often we fail to rejoice. We let our minds dwell on things, on the wrong things. We should be dwelling on what Paul says here, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, let us dwell on these things. And so often we fail to do that, and we dwell on something negative and we let our hearts become unguarded and we're not able to attain that peace that passes all understanding that Paul's talking about in that in that verse so before i move forward with some other thoughts this morning i've asked joe david to just sing that scripture so as we continue to uh, in our in our thoughts and listen to some things that god has shared that is going to share with us hopefully that uh, we'll sing that scripture right now Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Rejoice the Lord always, and again
1: I say, rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say, rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say, rejoice.
0: The thing about rejoicing is, it's something that doesn't always come naturally. Or easily. Have you ever been wronged or felt like you were wrong to the point you got angry about it? <laughs> to, the felt, to the point that you wanted revenge, or you felt even that someone only deserved your scorn? Maybe you, you had phrases come to mind, well, they had that coming. Or they got what they deserved. Maybe you just stay annoyed by something that is because your preferences aren't being met, things aren't really the way you want them to be, without thinking about the fact that someone else's preferences might be being met in that moment and God is leading them to Christ. Maybe you're harboring a feeling against another person and they have no idea that you are harboring that feeling. I know that's happened with me before. Early in, the, in the early 1990s, I was a teacher and a basketball coach Denise and I were a young married couple. We had some young children and I got invited to go to a marriage retreat. So I asked Denise would she want to go to that marriage retreat. It was sponsored by the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and it was a the purpose was to provide coaches and their spouses an opportunity to be with others coaches and spouses who were believers and had have the opportunity to just kind of share and share with each other and grow in the scripture and we had keynote speakers but this this particular year we also had small groups at the end of the keynotes at night we would meet in somebody else's room and there would be a handful of couples maybe three or four couples and there was this couple that we really learned a lot from that year one guy was talking about how he prayed over his children from the time they were born all the way up through that point in time. And he would talk about he would go in when they were little, and he would put his hands on their feet when they were in the crib, and he would pray over them. So that became a habit that I developed myself. And a lot of times it would be in the mornings before I would go to work. And I would go in, and I would pray, and I would pray about their walk with God. I would pray that they would be a great servant for God. I would pray about their future spouse that I had not met yet. I would pray about a lot of things, and it was great. I loved doing it. The thing about kids is they get older, <laughs> and they make choices, and they do things, and sometimes you uh, get frustrated with them. One of our daughters, well, all three of them, really, but um, this particular, at this particular moment in time, she was struggling to keep her room clutter-free, and by clutter-free, I mean embarrassingly clutter-free, to the point that somebody came over one time and took pictures of it and shared it with some other people. So we had some discussions about that. And so one morning I get up, I'm feeling great. I'm feeling just God's presence. And then I go in to pray and I open the door. I immediately got mad. I immediately got furious. There was not a clear path to get to her so that I could just kiss her on the forehead and say a prayer over her. And I remember thinking, she's not worth it. She doesn't deserve it. But in that moment, God spoke to me, and he reminded me that, yeah, here we go. Okay, no crying. All right, Um, but he reminded me that I'm that kid on the bed, and he has to move a lot of clutter to get to me sometimes. So I just want us to uh, understand that um, sometimes we think somebody doesn't deserve it, and we're the ones that doesn't deserve it. Recently, we went on vacation with our extended family. That daughter is now grown and has her own kids, so we get to go, yeah, huh? see how that goes? Um, and so we help them with that. But I had the opportunity to drive 13 hours by myself down there to meet, uh, meet them. So I was listening to an audiobook, and this was a, a work of fiction. One of the characters in the book was a man who had become very successful in organized crime. He had developed a lot of wealth, But he also had a daughter who became his prized possession. So of all the things that he had accomplished, through bad means really, um, she became his prized possession. And his love for her was immense because she had a heart for people that were downtrodden, that didn't have the same advantages as they did. And man, he just, she just became his joy. And on her 18th birthday, she was kidnapped and he was devastated, and he was willing to use all of his resources to find that daughter and get her back home. Well, I don't know if you, what kind of movies or TV shows you watch, but this, there was this agent, this equalizer type agent that he became uh, aware of. The guy would do this kind of work to help people out, not because he needed money. He didn't need the guy's money. And so he said he would help him find his daughter, but he made some demands on him. He made him he asked him, if she's really the most important thing in your life, I want you to give up this life of crime. And so the man began destroying his illegal drugs that he, that he had for sale. And he began to do some other things. So the agent went and he found this daughter. And he actually found out that she had faked the kidnapping. And that because she was in love with and, and was going to have a child with the daughter of his enemy. So when the father found out about that, he was furious. He was ready to disown her, he was ready to um, destroy her in his mind at that moment when he found out those things. So this is a classic plot that we see in movies, that we see in TV shows, we see in reality TV sometimes. There's this, this drama, there is this tension between a parent and a child or a brother and a sister that become estranged from each other and they get separated from each other and they get stubborn. And so as we think about that, sometimes we, we take sides and we can relate to a character and we can go back to those phrases, got what they deserve. They, that's, they sure had that coming. Well, Jesus tells a story differently. And I'm going to ask Ronnie to start reading a story from the parable in Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 11, and just read the first few verses there, Ronnie.
1: Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild
0: living, squandered his wealth in wild living. This was ancient times when family was a cornerstone to the family reputation was a cornerstone. And this son had not earned this blessing. This is just what the father was willing to do, was to give him maybe a portion of what he would have inherited later on down the road. But just think about this in that community. Can you imagine the gossip that might have been going on? Did you hear about his son? He went to a foreign country, pagans, Gentiles. He's spending the money that his father earned on prostitutes and wild living. Man, and and there's probably some adults out there that didn't even have kids at that point in time saying, man, if that was my son, my son would never do that. And if it was in Hollywood, we would see something similar to what I described before. They would be saying things that father didn't raise him very well. But Ronnie, what happened next?
1: After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods of the pigs reading, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And I, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son like Uh, Make me like one of your hired servants.
0: What Jesus is, is teaching here is not just another story. It's not just another soap opera. The implications are spiritual. Look at what the Son says. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your Son. He had rejected the Father, but now He's rejecting the life of sin. What comes to mind for me is the Sermon on the Mount. The very first words of Jesus' very first sermon were, Blessed are the poor in spirit. This man now was not just poor. He was poor in spirit. He recognized that he was spiritually bankrupt, and he was grieving and mourning the loss of his father that he had caused and had no one else to blame. He was hungry and thirsty, but not just for food. He was hungry and thirsty for righteousness that he didn't have, and he knew he couldn't attain by himself. He realized now that he was never worthy, especially not now. He was physically outside his father's presence, but his heart was headed home. So, Ronnie, what did he do? So he got up, and he went to his father. He went to the father. So now... The father has a lot of options, and if this were a Hollywood movie, the father might say things like, what do you think you're doing? You don't deserve to be back here. You embarrassed me. People are talking about me. You ruined our family name. People have been mocking me. You've been with the pigs. Go back to the pigs where you belong. That's what might have happened With us, that might be what happened in a movie. But that's not what the father did. He never stopped looking for his son to return. He had pure love, and he had pure forgiveness. So Ronnie, continue, please.
1: But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And he said to him, uh, and then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate.
0: So they begin to celebrate. Isn't that awesome? Except for they're not the only two characters in the story. Now, if this was a TV show, especially a soap opera, it's where it gets juicy, right? There's another brother. There's another brother that had heard the rumors, that had seen what had happened, that allowed people to influence him and set him up in a different way. He had sensed his father's longing probably for his other son, his brother, but he didn't share in that sense of longing for his brother. It was frustrating to him. And Ronnie's going to tell us how he responded.
1: Meanwhile. The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatty calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never, obeyed, never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him.
0: When this son of yours, not this brother of mine, but this son of yours... When he heard about the celebration, he asked, what's going on? And his fears were starting to come to fruition. His brother, who had shamed his family, was coming back, and he had set himself up as the good son. He's the one that's always been doing the right things. Maybe he had looked at this as some kind of competition that he thought he had won, and the rug's getting pulled out from under him. Maybe. He had the heart of Jonah and was just jealous that someone else might be saved that he wasn't approving of when it wasn't his right to approve it. And he was dwelling on all these bogus thoughts that stifled his ability to rejoice and hardened his heart. What he had always had was still there. He was with the Father and it was abundant. He was in his Father's house, but unlike in the Beatitudes, he was not pure in heart. His heart was somewhere else. And so Ronnie, how did the father have to deal with this son?
1: My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found.
0: The father is entreating his son to forgive and not let those negative influences shape his heart. Jesus' words in the Beatitudes are coming to fruition here. Some of the the other ones are coming up. He's imploring his son to show mercy. Blessed are the merciful. To employ meekness. To share in the peacemaking. Make peace with your brother. Rejoice that all is mine, is still all is yours. And rejoice that your brother is home and repentant. You may have heard of the theologian, from um, the Swiss theologian Karl Barth, who in the 1930s was speaking out and rejecting the influence of Nazism on the Christianity there in Germany. Over the decades, he wrote a lot about his understanding of theology. There's one multi-volume work called Church Dogmatics that has over 9,000 pages six million words, and it's said that in the 1960s, around 1962, he gave a lecture, he was giving lectures in the United States, and he was in Chicago, and he gave a lecture, and there was a question and answer session after the lecture, and he was asked by a young college student, can you reduce your theology to one sentence? Now remember, this guy had written over six million words about theology, but he said, yes, I can. It's from a song that I learned at my mother's knee. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And in this story of the prodigal son, Jesus is expressing how great the father's love is for us. The script is different from the ones that we watch and the ones that we read. But we are in this story. sometimes we're the younger son who rejects the Father for sinful choices, and we need to want and we've wandered off and destroyed things, and we need to come to our senses and repent and be forgiven and come back to the Father. And sometimes we're the second son, and we let our attitude be influenced by negative circumstances, by negative people. And we become bitter and self-righteous, unwilling to forgive, unwilling to rejoice, but the model is the forgiving Father. A couple more things from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 23, he says, Therefore, if you are offering a gift at the altar, and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with them, and then come and offer your gift. And just a little bit later in Matthew 6, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you. We sang earlier, it's free to everyone. And just like the children of Israel, you've got to be willing to reach out and take what God is providing for you. I'm told that the word in Greek for forgive literally means to send away. Send away implying once that it's gone, it's gone forever. And that's what the Father is willing to do. That's what he asked us to do. So just remember, the only thing you really own is your attitude. And the thing about that is you're the only one that gets to decide what it's going to be. God is telling us what to do. Don't hesitate. Take the gift that he is providing. Your attitude is a choice. Choose to forgive and choose to rejoice. As we sing in a minute, some elders... will.